From the New York offices of Oxford University Press, this is The Oxford Comment, a monthly podcast featuring insights from Oxford University Press authors, editors, and more. My name is Sarah, multimedia producer and your host for this episode. When I went food shopping last weekend and ventured into the produce section, it didn't cross my mind at first to actually look at the labels and see where the fruit and vegetables came from. I looked at their prices and if they seemed ripe, but I didn't check the labels and actually consider how much oil went into procuring them, or if lives were lost during their production and transportation. There's more going on here, economics and ethics and international politics. I recently invited two authors to join me in the studio for a chat about global resource exploitation, and more specifically, they had a lot to say about oil. I'm Leif Winar, and I'm the author of Blood Oil, Tyrants, Violence, and the Rules that Run the World. And I'm Dale Jameson. I'm the author of Reason in a Dark Time, Why the Struggle to Stop Climate Change Failed, and What it Means for Our Future. We met at Princeton in the academic year of 2000-2001. We were both fellows in the University Center for Human Values. Leif and Dale first explained what their respective books add to the discussion. One problem that we've had with climate change is that the causes of climate change are basically the emission of these tasteless, odorless gases. The consequences are very far off in the future. They happen often to people who are very far away and live very different kinds of lives than the people who are doing the emitting. And so for people who really want us to change our behavior and to get off these fossil fuels that cause these gases, it's been very hard to make the consequences vivid. And in recent years, people have begun to talk about the security implications of a climate-disrupted world. What we know in looking at past history is that often civil wars, food insecurity problems and so on have occurred at times in which we've seen a lot of extreme climatic events. I think what your book, Blood Oil, brings to the climate discussion is that it helps us to see that even in the world as we know it, the status quo world in which we drive our cars and eat our, heat our houses, drawing on the oil reserves of countries that are very far away, is already creating a world of instability and violence. Yeah, you're right, Dale. And you're absolutely right that in the book, I try to make vivid the connection between us in our daily lives, our shopping, and these events on the other side of the world which seem so distant, but which we know that somehow we are connected to. So at one point of the book, I say, well, imagine that we had to barter for our shopping instead of paying money. Imagine that when you're shopping for, say, a game console for your child, instead of handing over money, you would have to hand over an AK-47, which will be used by some militant in the Congo on a raid in a village. Or imagine that instead of paying money for gasoline at the pump, you would have to hand over 
six dozen plastic handcuffs that would be used on pro-democracy protesters in some Middle Eastern country. And the next time that you go to that gas station, you'll see a CCTV link with those protesters now in that overcrowded, sweaty prison. In some sense, this is the big picture that we're both so interested in getting across in our books. Now we get into some of the politics behind resource exploitation. There's a rule in place that governments around the world adhere to, a rule that Leif calls might makes right. One of the things that I found most interesting in your book, Blood Oil, is that you show that we have a principle that is embedded in international law that's very easy to elicit from politicians of all political stripes that seems very natural and intuitive to people, namely that a people owns its own resources. But Leif, why do you think it's so difficult for us to actually get governments and political bodies to act consistently with that principle? Well, Dale, this is something you write about in your book, Reason in a Dark Time. Why is it so difficult to get governments to agree to do something about climate, even when the leaders seem to be aware that this is an urgent issue and their advisors are all telling them that something has to be done about it? Nevertheless, agreement is extremely difficult to reach, and when it does come, as in Paris, it's immediately subject to severe criticism by people, especially the experts, who have a real sense of the urgency of the issue. Well, let's just be blunt. Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, Hillary Clinton, and Bernie Sanders will all agree to your principle that Americans own their oil. They will not agree universally to the Paris Agreement. Why is that? Good. So let me back up a bit and, and give a bit of the problem to which that principle is the solution. My book, Blood Oil, starts with some of the worst crises and threats that we've faced in the past 40 years. Think about the great foreign policy, no-win situations of the last generation. I mean, the Soviets surge ahead in the nuclear arms race, the hostage crisis in Iran, Saddam invades Kuwait, Gaddafi with his explosive anti-Western plots, the genocide in Darfur, now going back to Iraq, a Syrian refugee crisis, Putin invades Ukraine. All of these foreign policy crises come from countries that have a lot of oil. There's something about countries that have oil which makes them authoritarian and subject to civil conflict. And this is also where extremism has been gestating for all of our lives. The problem is that we have a very bad rule in the basis of global energy trade. The bad rule is, in the simplest terms, might makes right. Whoever has the most guns overseas, we say, with our law, will buy the oil from them. So when Gaddafi took over Libya in 1969, when he had the most guns, our law immediately said, we'll buy the oil of Libya from him. And when rebels later took over those same oil wells from Gaddafi, our law immediately switched to say that we can buy the oil from the 
rebels. Our law says might makes right. The law makes no sense from an everyday perspective. I mean, if Dale and I go and take over a gas station here in Manhattan, nobody thinks that the bystanders get a legal right to buy the gas from us, right? The law makes no sense. And it also causes the chaos we see in these resource-rich countries. So might makes right drives the resource curses of authoritarianism and civil conflict and extremism. It's obviously a bad law. The good news is that, as Dale says, we have a principle just waiting to replace it that almost everybody says that they believe. It's a principle enunciated by Abraham Lincoln in his first inaugural, a country belongs to its people. Yeah? It's the people of a country, not power, who should ultimately control the land. Well, if that's true, then the people should ultimately control the oil. The country belongs to its people, the oil belongs to its people. If the oil belongs to its people, then nobody should be able to sell off their oil without their consent. And in so many of these countries that we see today, the people of the country could not possibly be consenting to their oil being sold off. So that oil is literally stolen from the people. Today, over half the world's traded oil is literally stolen goods. And we should not think that we have a right to buy it. Instead, we should say that the oil belongs to the people and we're only going to buy oil from places where the people could possibly be understanding what happens to their oil and be agreeing to it being sold off. I, I hear a lot about ISIS and it's always framed um, politically. And so this link to oil and, and us possibly giving money to ISIS uh, is really fascinating to me because I, I don't know much about it because everything in the news that I end up, you know, seeing on Twitter and Google and whatever, it's, it's never talking about that. Um, and I was wondering if you guys, if I could pick your brain or if you could talk about that a little more. Yeah, it's such an interesting story. Oil enters the history of ISIS in three ways. First, directly, when ISIS was starting up, they became the richest terror group in the world by selling oil themselves. They were getting $2 million a day just by punching holes in the ground, filling up tankers, and sending it off. So they got rich on oil directly. They've also been enriched indirectly by oil money. So a lot of the money that ISIS gets comes from individuals in the Gulf states, Saudi, Emirates, Kuwait, individuals just sending them money because these people believe in the ISIS cause. So they're funded indirectly by oil money also. But the deepest way that ISIS and other jihadi groups are involved with oil is one we almost never hear about. And this has to do with Saudi Arabia the biggest oil state of them all. For the sake of its own regime stability, Saudi Arabia has, for the past 25, 30 years, been spreading its brand of extremely fundamentalist Islam around the world and imprinting it more deeply on its own people. So it's been 
funding madrasas, study centers, mosques around the world in what some people call the largest ideological campaign ever. Tens of billions of dollars has been spent spreading this very conservative brand of Islam around the world. The version of fundamentalist Islam that Saudi has been spreading is not the same as the jihadi version that we see with al-Qaeda and ISIS. But the jihadi version of fundamentalist Islam is what it mutates into under pressure, not only with ISIS and al-Qaeda, but as we can see all over the world. Because of this ideological campaign, we're getting what now looks like homegrown terrorists. And that's the deepest level where our oil money has gone to produce threats to the United States. But it's also possible that there is even a more fundamental connection. The region that ISIS rules is a region that has been in a drought that is almost unprecedented in the history of the Middle East. It's been economically unstable. It's been difficult for farmers to make a living. It's led to conflict over water, a kind of destabilization of property rights, contributed to intercommunal violence. That much is undeniable. There are some people who think that that unprecedented drought is related to the climate change that we are already experiencing. At this point, that is speculation. What is not speculation is that there are correlations between extreme weather events and climate instability and social instability of the sort that gives rise to groups like ISIS. So it may be that ISIS has been enabled by the same forces of corrupt fossil fuel oligarchies that have sustained it and have contributed to its spread. Yeah, I agree with that, Dale. And unfortunately, unless we do something about that, the problem is predicted to get worse. So where else is ISIS going? Well, for example, Libya, because Libya has the two things that ISIS wants, resources and instability. They thrive on the resources. They've already taken over some oil, and instability is perfect for them. It gives them more recruits. They can train where they want to and so on. The National Intelligence Council, which is a group of wise heads in the U.S. government, predicts that just the countries where oil is now being discovered are the countries that are going to be experiencing these climate-related phenomena. So in the next 20 years, the world is going to get hotter and hungrier and thirstier in just the places where oil is now being discovered. And that's very unlikely to mean that those places are going to be more stable. So this problem that Dale has just mentioned is bad. And unless we do something about it, it really is going to get worse. What does philosophy then have to do with the might makes right rule? Dale made a fascinating comparison. Well, among uh, the accomplishments of your book, I think you not only make a persuasive case for reordering the global oil trade, but you also make a persuasive case for both philosophy and folk music. 
um, this principle that might makes right, as we philosophers know, was put forward by Thrasymachus and soundly trashed by Socrates. And one might hope that if people were more aware of the arguments of the Platonic dialogues, these terrible arguments that so distort the world would not be quite as as seductive for people. And when it comes to the principle that you enunciate, it seems to me that Woody Guthrie said it best, this land is your land. That's beautiful. Dale and Leif then talked about the future of oil in the U.S., if the U.S. could ever really be free of foreign oil. Now, Leif, it seems to me that your book is appearing at a particularly opportune moment. Had this book come out five years ago or ten years ago or twenty years ago, people might have thought that, however convincing it was, they might have thought that we Americans are involved in a kind of Faustian bargain. Uh, Yes, this is dirty oil, this is blood oil, this is a terrible system, but we're so dependent on this. We We can't get by without this. But with new advances in drilling technology, with the oil that's beginning to come in from places like North Dakota and so on, I think that people really don't realize the extent to which the United States is now relatively free of foreign oil. Would you you like to say more about that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. The world is making it easier for us to get the things done that we need to get done. The U.S. still imports about 30% of its oil, but that percentage is declining. And a lot of people think that North America will be energy independent, even without my proposed reforms, just because of the new fracking technology, which is actually something I wanted to ask you about, Dale. The new technologies that North America now has are making it much easier for us to get off of authoritarian oil, which is terrific. We'll be less dependent on a very unstable part of the world, and we don't have to send our money to those very morally questionable regimes. Now, the new technologies are also leading to lower emissions for the first time in, uh, in the United States because of the replacement of coal with natural gas. Is that something that you endorse as part of the... First of all, the world needs to get off of all fossil fuels. It needs to get off of blood oil. It needs to get off of dirty oil. It needs to get off of clean oil. It needs to get off of dirty coal. It needs to get off of clean coal. And it needs to get off of natural gas. Now, this isn't going to happen all at once. All of these fuels have different properties. They're suitable for different purposes. The argument about fracking from a climate point of view, and I think the jury is still a bit out on this because we're going to need to see how things turn out, is on the one hand, fracking is reducing American carbon emissions by replacing coal with natural gas. That's a good thing. Natural gas has less carbon content per unit than does coal. On the other hand, to some extent, cheap natural gas flooding the market has made it more difficult for renewable energy to compete with fossil fuel energy. Will, in historical retrospect, will we see natural gas as a transitional fuel that allowed us to get away from fossil fuel entirely? Or will we see it as a cheap 
stopgap fossil fuel that kept renewables at bay for another year, another 10 years, or another 20 years, I don't think we know at this point. Yeah, so that's so interesting because I, I have to tell people listening how much I admire Reason in a Dark Time. It totally changed, well, it informed me more than in any, any other book about the climate crisis, and it changed my view about what should be done. But I have to say that at the end of the book, I've felt that there was some sense of despair or perhaps pessimism, that, um, that um, humanity actually can get its act together enough to really make progress on this problem. So someone of my friends just contrasted our two books this way. Dale Jameson's book says, we're doomed. And Leif Wenar's book says, we're doomed unless. Now, that not, might not be charitable enough to your book. Do you think we're doomed unless? Is there a, a way out? Is there a strategy now? I don't think we're doomed. I mean, um, we may be doomed in the sense that all species eventually, in some sense, are doomed. But I suspect this one still has a long, strange trip ahead of it. What is true is that we've changed global climate in ways that are unprecedented for the experience of humanity. And we're committed to this, and this is not likely to change for centuries or perhaps even millennia, no matter what we do. But what that means is that the lives that we lead will have to go on in relationship to those anthropogenic climate changes. Not that we will become extinct or that life will not be worth living, Millions of people will die, and life will be much harder for many people. But human life will go on. The experiment will continue. Now, what will a world without blood oil be like? What will a world without the Middle Eastern monarchies be like? Probably better. But who knows, really? And so there's a sense in which we bring about change. We can never really be sure about what, what the future holds. And I think that can be seen as a kind of pessimism, but I think it can also be seen as a kind of embrace of a future with more possibilities, more morally responsible approach to thinking about the future, rather than just allowing us to continue to be locked in to blood oil, to climate change, to things that we know are making human life much more difficult. And hurting people all over the world who are completely innocent to the sources of these wealth and this power. So when I go to the gas station, there's two things that I'm doing. I'm putting carbon into my car and I'm sending money back into the world. Now, the carbon may eventually go into the atmosphere and heat up the climate, and the money may go back to a place like the Middle East and heat up the political climate. It might even end up in the hands of a group called ISIS, which means us harm. What's difficult about both of our problems is that the connections between our individual actions as drivers and shoppers and these large-scale phenomena are complex and diffuse. So, the next time Hurricane Sandy hits New York, will it have been my carbon that has been part of that? It's hard to know. The next time that 9-11 
hits New York, is it going to be my money that I paid for the gas that's part of the threat that comes back? It's hard to know. I can say that there's one priority for us, and that is just to stop buying blood oil. Peacefully, gradually, responsibly, we have to taper off our imports of authoritarian oil and also conflict minerals. If you had to give us a priority like that, that people could really understand what's the most important thing, what would you give them? So I would give them a complementary priority, not one that I think competes with your priority or replaces your priority, but is another one. And that is to stop the use of coal. And the reason for that is because the coal cycle is destructive in every aspect, from it being dug out of the ground, where it destroys mountaintops, where it endangers miners, to the air pollution problems that it creates and the rates of lung cancer and emphysema, to the aesthetic problems that air pollution creates, to its climate-changing properties. Oil is an extremely valuable and useful commodity. You can do things with oil that you can't easily do with coal. You can, for example, carry it around in 10-gallon tanks in little pieces of metal, and it will propel you for hundreds of miles across the landscape. What this tells me is that although we need to get away from all of these fossil fuels, we need to use those fuels that have distinctive value, in particular cases like oil, very, very carefully and responsibly. And part of using oil responsibly is to not dump it into electrical power generating plants to produce electricity, but it's also to buy it fairly on the market, to make sure that the people who own it are fairly compensated for the transaction that they engage in, in giving up the oil, and for us to use it as carefully and responsibly as we can, recognizing that the day must come sooner rather than later that we will need to live without this fuel at all. It's just fascinating how everything just seems interconnected, right? Um, and how important it seems to, to be informed about things that you see in the news that maybe you could dig a little deeper and see how it affects you and uh, where you live and locally how you affect this larger phenomenon. Well, I would just add that the problems are interrelated, but so are the solutions. And avoiding blood oil is part of the solution to climate change. If you want to get a sense of the history of the climate science and the climate debate, there's just no better place to go than Reason in a Dark Time. It has the most brilliant chapter on the history of climate science and the climate political debate. And seeing that, makes you discouraged at the decisions that politicians have made up to now, but knowing what's happened up to now, as you say, being informed about that is the best way of understanding how we can make progress in the future. And so when Leif mentioned a website he made, I wanted to make sure he shared it with you as well. People want to know more about the issues around blood oil and also what we can do right now in our own lives to do something about this problem can go to cleantrade.org. That's cleantrade, all one word, dot org. 
thank you to Leif and Dale for coming on the show. And to you as well, thank you for listening. It's been a year since we restarted the Oxford Comment, and I've learned a ton from speaking to our knowledgeable guests. I hope you have too. More episodes of the Oxford Comment can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and as always, on the OUP blog. And if you'd like to contribute to the conversation, please feel free to leave us a comment. Until next time, friends. <laughs>